Guys, what's going on? Welcome back to the Teaching and the Coaching Podcast. We're ready to give you guys some fresh content. This is our learning laboratory. Break down all matters, teaching and coaching. Because guess what, guys? You're a teacher. You're a coach. You may not know it, but you are. And so hopefully you can take some wisdom from our guest today and apply it in your life. Before we get to our guest today, we want to do a quick reminder for our sponsor, Integral Hockey Stick Repair in Boston. Check them out online and on all social media platforms. They do a great job taking your broken hockey sticks and repairing them, saving you guys up to 70%. So that's Integral Hockey Stick Repair in Boston. They are owned and operated by Joe Bartell. They do a great job, guys. That being said, can't wait to introduce you guys to my next guest. He's a very good friend of mine. His name is Benny Linsky. He is a Boston police officer and a member of the street outreach team. But I think you'll find he has a very, very unique background and brings a different approach uh, to the police force. So let's get right into it, guys. We hope you enjoy the show. See ya. Knowing that dog, it'll just move from like that to like a pair of shoes. He's like Santa's little helper from the seconds he's gonna float by behind me somehow and just like like a terror you know yeah <laughs> He'll be up on the table like cooking himself dinner yeah <laughs> a tale of two dogs so welcome to the show first and foremost uh mr linsky officer linsky how's the rest of the dog sitting adventure going today um it's been good so far we took one to the park earlier we got some energy out had some dinner they're over there right now and they've gone to their separate corners so i'm hoping uh i'm hoping for a fairly quiet interview <laughs> anything so, could happen it's a crazy world in the life of a dog these days especially on the heels of a pandemic you know i mean there's a lot of pent-up frustration there so yeah they don't get it they don't get you know they're going around their their owners are wearing masks everybody else is wearing masks it's very confusing to them actually that's a fair question do they ever get confused about who their owner is because they can't see you or do they just go off of like scent that's a good question i don't know i mean being a dog owner for like the last, like, I don't know how long have I had Willie, like 11 years now or something like that. Like he knows that I'm coming home simply by like the way that I'm jiggling the keys kind of thing, you know? Yeah. It's kind yeah. of amazing. You know? So it's like, it's definitely not just on pure sight alone. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, you guys are, you guys are bonded, right? You know, both naturally and supernaturally. I don't know how that happened. We literally have the same heart. Yeah. <laughs> You showed me like years ago. I remember this was back when we were still pedicabin. I think you showed me and John pictures of you and Willie cuddling on a Friday night. You're like, this is all I'm doing tonight, guys. Like, that's it. Or something like that. So yeah, not, not much has changed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Ten years later, we're still cuddling. <laughs> yeah. Ever since that, I'm just like, okay, it's real. It's real. Yeah. You know. So if we were gonna ask, okay, so full disclosure for anybody that's listening, Benny and I go back uh a little ways here, but I'm gonna ask you stuff that I may know the answer to, but nobody else may know the answer to. So for anybody listening, how would you explain what it is that you do on a day-to-day basis? What is your job? I'm a police officer for Boston police. And um, <clears throat> up until recently, I was uh, just working in a district. Imagine the life of 
sort of like a normal district police officer going to radio calls and uh, being assigned a certain area, answering 911 calls in the city. But up until recently, so I, I got transferred recently to a, a specialized unit called the Street Outreach Unit. So within Boston, we have, you know, we have uh, officers that work in districts, and then you have officers that work for uh, these various units, units that you would, you could probably guess. We have a drug unit, we have a gang unit. Now we have this street outreach unit, which is a fairly new thing for Boston. To summarize it, basically it's um, any any th- issue that touches the Boston police that has to deal with homelessness, mental health, or substance use, somehow the street outreach unit is involved with those things, right? So we are generally doing a lot of outreach. We're trying to get people housing. We're trying to get people into detoxes. We're trying to get people connected to treaters. So we're doing a lot of your kind of traditional social work type functions, but within a police role, you know, so it sort of almost acts as a, as a diversion type of system, which ironically is very similar to, to work that I was doing previous to being a police officer, which we can get into that if you want to, but this, this unit basically works as a diversionary type of unit where we try to address the underlying issues that often lead people to police involvement. Got it. And you have experience as, you know, a traditional, I don't even know what you'd call it, a traditional street cop, if you will. But what you do now is is a lot more specialized than uh, what most people would think of when they think of police work. Am I right in that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, got it. You know, kind of going back to what you and I talked about offline, what I want to do in this conversation is really look at how the work you do as a specialist within a police department is very much in the vein of teaching and in coaching kind of separate those two Mm -hmm. and hopefully and hopefully we can extract some some wisdom from that and the listeners can extract some things that they can take home from them and say okay this is actually applicable in my own life because i i think that there is a lot of crossover with that with what you do because like you said i mean you're there is a heavy element of social work in 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 your work on a day-to-day basis right absolutely yeah. Okay. So let's, let's back up then. I mean, so, I mean, how, like, how did you even get into this line of work? Like what made you say, like, I want to be a police officer? Like why, why a police officer and not just a social worker per se? <laughs> I never planned on being a police officer. And so it's just a surprise me that I ended up being here as it is to like everybody else in my family. You know, my, my mother was a nurse. My father was a teacher. Um, there was no police officers in my family, no police officers in my extended family. So this was a career that I kind of fell backwards into, but I'm very thankful for it. You know, I mean, it's worked out really well for me. I'll, I mean, I can just back up a little bit. Originally, a lot of my work prior to policing was in the counseling type of field, counseling field. I got a master's degree in uh, mental health counseling from UMass Boston, and that was a while ago. Previous to that, I was doing what's called wilderness therapy. So I was working up in New Hampshire and I was taking groups of like at-risk teenagers into the woods and like teaching them survival skills and stuff. It was a therapeutic thing. There was a a large therapeutic element to it. These were kids that were having a hard time. And that's kind of what got me hooked into the whole like counseling type of field. It was really my love for like the outdoors that I wrapped up into wanting a desire to help people. So in so doing that, I wanted to continue in that line of field, but I needed to further my education to do it. So that's what brought me into UMass Boston to further my education and get a master's in mental health counseling. During that prog- that process while I was getting that, 
I started working for something, an organization called the Best Team, Boston Emergency Services Team. And they hold a contract in the city of Boston to do all these emergency psychiatric evaluations, right? So people who are suicidal, homicidal, psychotic, they talk to them. They're crisis clinicians, master's level trained clinicians that talk to these people and basically act as gatekeepers and direct them towards appropriate services, right? A lot of that work happens in medical settings, emergency rooms, it can happen in private residences and schools too. Um, so while I was doing that, I was also exposed to like the medical side of things, right? Then I sort of kind of got a little bit off track. I mean, you know, when you're in your mid twenties or so, you know, you're, I was being pulled in different directions. At one point, uh, I kind of got put on a pathway thinking maybe I would transition into medical school and trying to be a physician. A good friend of mine was going through medical, medical school at the time. And he was like, you'd be great for this. You know, you should really think about it. So I kind of put myself on that track. Simultaneously, while that happened, the best team who I was interning with picked me up as a, uh, as I was working for them. They just picked me up as a job. I went from an internship to a, I think I was working part-time for them. And while I was doing that, a few years into it, so I had, I had a few years of clinical experience under my belt at that point, and I was actively trying to get into medical school. While that was happening, Boston Medical Center that was overseeing the best team partnered up with the Boston police, and they wanted to create this new program called the Criminal Justice Diversion Program, where they wanted to take crisis clinicians, master's level trained clinicians, and pair them up with police officers and have them co-respond to 911 calls to go. The idea being, let's get people who are trained to deal with people in crisis and to try to help the police officers make a good decision about what to do with these folks. Should we send them to a hospital? Should we arrest them? Should we just call their therapist and link them back up with their treaters? Or do we just sit down with them and have a nice conversation and leave them where they are? You know, it was a, a fairly new program that started in 2011. And I was asked at that time to, hey, like my bosses came to me and said, I know you're trying to get to med, med school. Would you think about doing this for a little while, kind of while you're doing that? <laughs> and I told him, I was a like, <laughs> a little while, he says. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I was like, yeah, you know what? I'll do it. I'll hop on. It'll be good for my resume. And obviously, you know, the whole med school thing never worked out. And I did the co-responder work as a clinician for five years. And while I was doing that, all I kind of fell in love with police culture. You know, I think that's the best way to put it is that like I found a group of people that I really identified with and bonded with. You know, I, I was like, I could really see a future like in, in law enforcement. And, um, and it felt like a, an easy transition because I was already pseudo doing the work, you know, sure. I was not a police officer, but I felt very like enmeshed in that community. I was going to 911 calls. I was riding around in a cruiser. All my friends were cops. Felt like a natural transition. I started applying to the police academy. I got into the academy in 2016 and I've been a police officer since. And when you say police culture, you mean just like the people that you're with and, you know, the day to day, you know, like you just, you just jived with them essentially, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's nothing, nothing too deep. Like I'm sure there's a, like you're a hockey guy. I'm sure there's a hockey culture, you know, of course, sure. there's like a, you know, there's a, a way that you guys talk to each other. There's a language that you use, you know, there's, there's a whole culture to that. It's no different with policing. There's a, like a police culture, you know? Yep. 
no doubt. It's I remember when I first met you. I mean, you and I have been friends for eight years, I think. I met you in 2013. When we were both pedicabbing. That that was what I remember you doing was the ride-alongs. I remember you explaining to me initially, like, oh yeah, I have to. I'm kind of in the ear of you know an, an officer or a captain or whoever is on a call, you know, kind of giving clinical analysis about what's going on in whatever crisis situation. You know, whether yeah. it's um, and those situations had a pretty wide spectrum, right? That could be anything. Yeah. 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 I mean, it was, it was, it was a really cool job now that, you know, I think back and I think about like the things that I was exposed to and how quickly I was exposed to them, you know, like because of the nature of the job and the sort of expertise that I brought to the table for these guys, I was put into situations that like, obviously I never would have had the opportunity to be involved with before, but simply because like I had this clinical acumen, this, this skill set, these attributes, I was able to sort of insert myself and find ways to be helpful. You know, I mean, I was the first person doing that job. You know, we were kind of breaking ground and we were sort of figuring it out as we went, you know, like, what is this thing actually going to look like in practice? And so I was just trying to find as many ways as possible for it to be useful, to be helpful. Right. And sure. I found like there's a lot of ways that like somebody with that sort of skill set can be helpful within that sort of criminal justice uh, umbrella. You know, I mean, all the normal things that you can think of, like just going to 911 calls, like these family trouble calls, like parents not getting along with their kids. Of course, you could be helpful for that. But even like prisoners that get arrested that come back to the station, just like talking to them um you know what are they called uh, they have like these barricaded person type calls like people taking hostages barricading themselves like these can be some high stress situations but at the root of it a lot of the time there's always some sort of underlying mental health piece right so having a clinician on scene that can sort of recognize those signs and symptoms and speak that language is like super useful, super helpful. And I think that's why the program, that program has expanded so much in Boston. In 2011, it was just me, right? Now, like we've, we are hiring all these clinicians. They're going to have clinicians in every district. We're trying to get one in every district and cover at least the day shift and the evening shift. So that's a lot of clinicians, you know? How much of, uh, can we, can we talk about the mental health piece for a second? Cause I, I, it's come up on, on different episodes. I'm dying to clarify it because I feel like mental health, it, it's very fashionable to say, and you're somebody that deals directly with mental health. There's a difference between <clears throat> mental health. When we talk about things like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, like some really, really heavy stuff versus what I think a lot of people uh, say when they say mental health, I think a lot of them just say like, oh, like depression and anxiety. And that may not even be on a clinical level. That might just be, that could be just self-inflicted. That could be a problem, like we were talking earlier, a problem of the soul, right? Like something's just not going well in their life, you know, by their own will and accord. And it's not necessarily clinical. So what were the kinds of mental health issues that you were witness to that made situations really challenging to deal with? Well, first of all, I mean, usually how I think about the mental health piece is how does it affect their daily living, right? So like if it, if it affects your life, if, if it affects your ability to move through the world, go to your job, get up on time, shower, uh, communicate with your loved one, like if it impacts those things, then 
it's an issue, right? And it doesn't really matter like what the causes or where it came from. Like, you know, some people are like shy about calling things mental illness or a mental health issue or not, or like organic or where it comes from. Like from my perspective, I just look at how it affects their daily living. It affects their daily living, then it's an issue, right? Sure. That's what it comes down to. What kinds of mental issues or me mental illnesses cause you, the clinician, the most amount of stress and how would you deal with them? As a clinician? Well, I could answer this as a police officer or I could answer it as a clinician. I guess I could answer it as both. I mean, uh, cl the, clinician, because that's the time period we're in, right? The things that are most risky, I guess, you know, you're like high level sort of unmedicated psychosis type of stuff, you know, somebody having like command auditory hallucinations, you know, they hear voices, they tell them to do things and they respond to those things, you know, like that's pretty dangerous for everybody, you know, Yikes. and usually yeah. it leads to somebody with like pretty low level, like ability to do their activities of daily living, you know, if they're experiencing that sort of thing, you know, but all the way down to like somebody who has like severe depression, I mean, that can be debilitating, you know, sure. um, you know, pe people diagnosed with like major depressive disorders, you know, just they're staying in bed for days at a time and it's affecting their sleep and their appetite, their energy. They're not um, doing things that they normally do um, and affecting their, their job and their, you know, their relationships around them. You know, I mean, that's all, th those things are all problematic. And just to clarify, that's kind of, when I, when I'm referring to like clinical depression, that's what I'm referring to. Not the yeah. person that's like, Oh, I'm depressed, you know, cause I like had a bad day or something like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. 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 I get it. I mean, it's like, you know, you're, you're, you know, with a clinical mindset, you just try to meet the person where they're at, you know, it's like, it's not on me to like judge, you know, everybody has their own resiliency, right? I mean, resiliency is like an interesting thing. Like what makes you resilient versus what makes me resilient. You know, we, we're going to have different subjective scales for something like that, you know? So typically we just look and see how it's affecting their daily living. And then I use that as a gauge for how much I need to be involved. The other half of that question would be, well, you, you said it yourself as a police officer, then how would you answer that question any differently in terms of what, what makes, uh, what are like the most challenging types of mental illness to deal with or situations? I mean, it's an, it's an interesting question when you're a police officer, like I'll answer this as like a, as like a district guy, right? If you're a police officer working in a district, especially in a busy district, you're inundated with calls. You're really just trying to expeditiously move through each of these calls. The experience of a district guy in a busy district in Boston is going to be very different than a police officer working in a smaller city somewhere else where they have more time and maybe resources, I don't know, but at least more time and less pressure to move through these calls, right? Ironically, somebody with a pretty severe psychosis, somebody who's undressing themselves in public and, you know, hearing voices and rolling around in a puddle in the ground, it's pretty obvious that that person is experiencing like a severe, they're in severe, like medical, emotional distress and their symptoms are best handled, like in an emergency room setting. So it's pretty straightforward for that police officer, what they need to do. They need to get an ambulance over there, get the person in the ambulance and get them going. Right. So that's not the that's not terribly complicated. I would actually say that the more interesting cases are the ones where it's not totally obvious that there's a mental health piece underlying it. And it can be fairly easy to ignore that piece. Police officers go to 
a lot of domestics in Boston, right? Especially in busy neighborhoods. And at these domestics, you might show up and people are stressed out and it's high emotions and people are angry and multiple people have called 911. And you might've been out to that address a few times that week, maybe a few times that shift. You're trying to figure out what is the path of least resistance here. But it's there's a significant possibility that especially in neighborhoods, sort of low socioeconomic status type neighborhoods that there are one person or multiple people in that house who have experienced a serious trauma. And right. some of the reason why they are acting the way they are is as a response to the to the repeated traumas that they've been exposed to. So it's easy for police officers, I think, to sort of to sort of miss those cues because we and it's no fault of their own because you know there's a million different reasons why not enough resources, not enough cops, we don't have enough time, the job is stressful, you work hours. There's a million reasons why you're why people can miss these sort of subtle cues about why people are doing the things that they're doing. But I think that those are the more interesting cases and the more difficult ones. Yeah. I don't know if that answers your question. But. Yeah, it's interesting because it because it, be, it, it begs another question that I wanted to bring up. And that is so I mean, you as a clinician, you are a teacher, you are a coach naturally, because you know, you're here you're like the consigliere, right? Of, you know, your, your fellow police officer. Hey boss, here's what's really going on here. You should maybe try this or this, this. that's kind of how I envision your role. Do I have that right? I found out about this Captain McCluskey who broke Mike's jaw. What about him? Now he's definitely on Shalatso's payroll and for big money. McCluskey has agreed to be the Turk's bodyguard. What you have to understand, Sonny, is that while Salazzo is being guarded like this, he is invulnerable. It would be disastrous. All the five families would come after you, Sonny. The Corleone family would be outcast. Even the old man's political protection would run for cover. So do me a favor. Take this into consideration. Yeah, sort of, yeah. I mean, the role that I'm in right now is like we're supposed to be the sort of the subject matter experts when it comes to issues around homelessness, mental health, substance use. I, I don't know that I consider myself a subject matter expert. I have some education in this and I have some, some experience. So I have like a body of knowledge that I'm working off of. But yeah, like at these sort of, you know, calls, people that uh, sort of keep popping up on the radar or calls that might be really complicated, calls that get really serious. Um, yeah, they might bring my unit in, involved uh, to come in to try to uh, lend a hand and some expertise. You know, because of my background, I I also on a side note, I've also I'm also on the uh, the negotiating team. So we have a crisis negotiating team. So you know, sort of the your negotiators, right? The guys, you know, to put the jacket on, negotiate on the back, and if you have like some sort of a hostage situation. Or somebody has barricaded themselves, taken a hostage, they got a weapon, stuff like that. They'll call in the SWAT team and then they'll call in negotiators. One more shot. We start killing hostages. That's the leader. Send someone to negotiate. I, 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 I've never negotiated. I... You mind if I try? No, no, sure, sure, sure. We're sending somebody in to negotiate. Right, to try to talk to this person. So I also, I'm on that team. So there are certain weeks that I'm on call that I, I would have to respond to something like that. So I think that's a really good example where they bring in people to, who have like a real subject matter ex, uh, expertise. They've gone to a, 
a pretty in-depth training and are able to sort of like negotiate these sort of like high stress situations, something like that. I think the role is fascinating in and of itself that you as a, I mean, you're as a civilian, I don't know if that's even the right term, but are in these situations where you have not gone to the academy, you've not gone to traditional police training. You you don't have a firearm as far as I know, um, as the jail clinician, I'm going back to, you know, when I was doing, yeah, what I was doing for it. Nope. Yeah. Right. Uh, I'm going back to that time period. And yet, you know, you're, you're in the, the ear of these people that have to make that are stressed and have to make very difficult decisions that being, you know, your, your fellow officers and such, you know, that seems to be incredibly valuable. So given the attention on mental health, to me, that makes sense logically that Boston police would expand that program and that it's gone from you being the first one in 2011 to however many there are today. Yeah. I mean, there's a few different models that um, different agencies are working with when it comes to, you know, trying to adapt the, you know, I, you know, I, I don't even know what you would call it now. I mean, it's obvious now that most police agencies have taken on all these additional roles that you would theoretically see as more social work type roles. But for whatever yeah. reason, a lot of those things have kind of fallen into the laps of police agencies. So they've had to adapt to that and have had to you know, come up with creative ways to, um, to provide a good product to the public, right? And what Boston has decided to do is kind of like a hybrid model. So we have a co-responder model, right? So like we talked about where we pair up clinicians with police officers, we also train officers in what's called CIT, crisis intervention training, which is basically when you take a, a regular police officer, Joe Schmo, you know, Eric Ben, and you send him to a, uh, I think it's a 40 hour training. It's a one week training, but it's really just like an in-depth crash course on a lot of the things that we're talking about on mental health, signs and symptoms resources that are available in your local community. Um, they take you through a number of exercises, you know, put you through some, uh, some sort of like skits where you're acting these things out with other people. So we kind of, we, we utilize both of those things. We have a CIT model and we have a corresponder model. And so we're always getting more officers trained in CIT and we're hiring more corresponders. So I mean, I think Boston's done doing the work in terms of really investing on that side of policing, yep. trying to trying to find ways to provide a better product um, to the public. I mean, could it be better? Yeah, of course. Yeah. You know, there's, there's all kinds of bureaucratic things that are going to get in the way that are going to like slow down progress. But it's pretty obvious that at least our department recognizes the need and is willing to invest in it. What's, um, you know, one of the things we've talked about in the show is the difference between teaching and coaching, how we've come to define it was studying this a lot before I started speaking about it was that teaching was more of, okay, you don't know this information. So I'm going to like push it on you. You know what I mean? Like, okay, here's, here's how to do this math problem. Here's this country in this capital in geography class, whatever. Whereas coaching, you're kind of working with an existing skill set. You know, you've got a hockey player, a grappler in jujitsu and you're saying, okay, instead of doing it like this, try it like this. And you're mm. just kind of directing them instead of saying, mm. no, 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 stop do this because I'm the, the guru, the teacher here. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So that being said, it, it sounds like this work that you were doing as a clinician was much more of a teaching role. Am I, am I right in assuming that? Yeah, I think for the most part, yeah, because, it, you know, I had a body of knowledge. I have some skills and attributes that the other police officers hadn't been exposed to yet because it was, you know, just, it wasn't like a normal thing at, at that time for officers to have that sort of background, you know? 
So it was kind of like a special thing that I brought to the table that I was trying sure. to offer guys. Yeah. So I would say that that was more of a, of a teaching thing, but I think it has probably transitioned more to coaching at this point because poli police officers, at least within our, our department at our academy, are being exposed to this sort of training, even at the academy level. So they're probably being taught these things. That's more of like a teaching thing at the academy level, right? Uh, but once they get out of the academy and they have an FTO or they get assigned to what's called a field training officer. So there's like a probationary period where you ride around with a more seasoned officer who is your FTO, your field training officer. And that person kind of helps you get your feet wet, right? They sort of bridge the gap between, okay, this is what you've been taught. This is what it's like in the academy. And now we're in the real world and we're going to try to apply those things that you've been taught. And we're going to see how those apply in real time. And your FTO kind of is there, like hold your hand through that process. So yeah. I think that's more of like the coaching aspect on that side. So yeah, we have something similar. And, and it speaks to the evolution of police work, like the constant evolution, right? And this is where, you know, I'm a history teacher, so I nerd out on this stuff. I love looking at the history of any public service, whether that's, you know, hospitals or police work, fire departments, education, and how it's evolved over time and the things that caused it. I remember teaching a history class like some time ago, when we looked at New York City at the time of the Industrial Revolution and how police departments didn't even have mugshots. They didn't have any, they didn't have fingerprinting. They didn't have ID. It's just like, are you kidding me? Like, how did you guys, <laughs> how did you guys even survive? Like, no, no wonder you could get away with any sort of criminal activity back then, you know? In America in 1890, crime and poverty are rife on the streets. But these mavericks are about to make a difference. Gangsters, murderers, thieves, and fear are on the streets. New tabloid newspapers splash crime all over the front pages. In Chicago, you can rent a gun by the hour. In the Sears catalog, you can buy one for $12. In New York, a policeman finds a list on a murdered gangster. His rate card. Punches, $2. Nose and jaw broke, $10. Ear chewed off, $15. The big job, a hundred bucks and up. But tracking down criminals isn't easy. There's no official ID, no birth certificates or driver's licenses. If a criminal is known in one town, he just moves to the next. Criminals are anonymous. Burns is tackling this problem head on and bringing police work into a new age. This is his rogues gallery, mugshots of 7,000 known lawbreakers. Using photography to identify criminals will change detective work forever. Annie Riley, alias Little Annie, deceitful servant. The mugshots are distributed to police departments around the country. But these are more than just pictures. Burns is also building psychological profiles of criminals. Rufus Minor. He comes from a very good family. It's a pity he's a thief. This is the first attempt to create a national crime register. It's so, you know, here it is, uh, you know, and, and here's just like the, you know, the, the 21st century example of it, right? Where you're the first guy as, uh, you know, kind of the mental health expert, it seems. And now everybody kind of has some sort of a working knowledge, you know, some more than others, you obviously have in more of a background. Um, 
But as you said, that now it's the police work has evolved to a point where you no longer need the teacher as much you need uh, coaches, because there's a working knowledge that you can kind of maneuver and manipulate and work with do i have that right yeah absolutely yeah i mean i can give you i can give you an example you know if, if you want to stick to sort of the mental health component so in yeah. in massachusetts we have these things called section 12s right a section 12 is uh well it's actually part of the law it's mass general law chapter 123 section 12 which basically covers you know if you have somebody who is severely mentally ill you know they um they're actively suicidal or actively homicidal or you know so psychotic that they can't care for themselves in the community in order to get that person to the hospital for the purpose of a psychiatric evaluation um if they're not voluntary uh a person needs to fill out a section 12 it's a form that you fill out right but it's basically a a document that ensures that this person temporarily has sort of lost their civil liberties to say no. And we are the, the, the subject matter experts are saying, no, you need to go to a hospital because we need to address these things because it's gotten that serious, right? Now, um, the, the way that the law is written, there's only certain people that are, that are qualified or have been deemed qualified to be able to sign one of these things and fill them out, right? You have, you know, you, uh, an MD, right, uh, you know, a psychiatrist, LICSW, but um, ironically, well, not necessarily ironically, but police officers have always been allowed to fill these things out, technically. And the reason why they did that is because when the law was first written, they wanted to make sure that officers who were working in places that didn't have a lot of resources, they wanted to make sure that officers had a tool to be able to address folks who had this sort of severe mental illness. If they didn't have somebody, a certain, another subject matter expert that felt comfortable filling them out, right? And Boston, for a long time, police officers weren't using them. It was a tool that they weren't using um, because we had we have Boston EMS and they have their own sort of subset of rules, which allowed them to be able to transport these same individuals. But because of the, like a bureaucratic thing and like the way that. Um, some of these different agencies are interacting, it's generally better to fill out the section 12 because that ensures that the person will actually get seen for an evaluation at the hospital. Sometimes without that section 12 filled out, people fall through the cracks and just because they get transported doesn't mean they're actually going to be evaluated. That being said, there, there came to be a coaching component eventually with these section 12s of like, okay, um, we really need to start taking advantage of these as an agency because this is a really good tool to make sure that we're addressing some of these folks who are continuously coming across our radar. You know, there's only so many times that you can arrest somebody for trespassing or arrest somebody for, you know, public urination or something like that before we need to start really start addressing the underlying mental health issues that's bringing them there in the first place, right? And so these section 12s were a good tool to do that. So there eventually was a, was a large coaching component where we were really trying to educate the officers on how to fill these things out and to get them comfortable with doing that. And that's still an ongoing thing. There's still a lot of police officers that feel uncomfortable filling out that document. And that's just, just because it's a cultural thing. It's something that they've never did before. They never had to do. They don't see a reason for it. They think that it's something that only like a doctor should be doing. But it's slowly but surely we're seeing more and more officers that are comfortable doing it. And that's, you know, out of I would say like a lot of modeling type behaviors like myself and other officers that feel comfortable doing it showing the other police officers how it's done, showing them how to fill it out at that scene so that they know, okay, this is an appropriate time to use it. 
you know? So I think that's where the coaching part comes in is like in this very specific instance, this is a valuable tool. How do we get police officers who are reluctant to take advantage of it? How do we educate them to show them that like, okay, this is a good thing. This is something that's going to be very helpful. Hey, that's got to be really difficult to be in that spot where you're in a position where you have to make a decision basically for somebody else because they're not, they don't have all their marbles or whatever is going on with them. Is that something that happens often? Do you find yourself in those situations frequently? Yeah, that's a pretty common call. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People, um, these, you know, spe specifically these section 12s, you know, they're being filled out all the time by somebody's location provider might fill one out, you know, it's, it's a very common call. We call them EDP calls or emotionally disturbed person calls. Those are very common calls that come into 911, a person who's acting bizarre, talking to themselves, or they have threatened suicide, or maybe they're, they're, they've, they've attempted. That's a very common call. I mean, I know that it sounds like pretty extreme, but I would say, especially if you're in a, a, a busy city in a busy district, that's something that you're probably going to see almost every shift. There's got to be, you must have some some situations that you recall, maybe things were a little tense, a little crazy, and you were able to have a direct impact in a positive way, given whatever counsel you had to give as a as a jail clinician, where it, it had a really good impact on, on uh, it had a positive outcome as a result of your teaching or your advice, however you want to categorize it. Do you, do any of those like stick out at all? Or do you remember, are there any times when you're like, you know what, I think this really worked out well. And I feel really good about that. I'm glad I could make a difference or whatever. Oh, geez. <laughs> I don't know. I'd have to think about it. I mean, as I'm like going back into like the memory bank, I don't know. I should have come up with one ahead of time because all the, all the things that are coming back to me right now are just like horrific, morbid calls that I've been to. You know? <laughs> like, I'm sure Gosh, your audience like, sorry. Doesn't... <laughs> just all the worst stuff just flooding back into your brain. Like, Oh God. Okay. <laughs> and we lost Benny. <laughs> all right. Exit. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, I need a minute. <laughs> I don't know that I can, that I, I can speak to like specific stuff. I, as a clinician doing the work before, I think that I was probably most proud of just most proud of, of when officers would call me, you know, I wouldn't even, I would, it wouldn't even be like me and the partner that we were going to a call. It would be somebody else's call. And they ran into a situation that um, was untenable. You know, you know, they had to figure something out. Maybe there was an arrest that they, that they could make, but were trying to not make, they didn't want to disturb the sort of the family milieu. Right. So they might call me to come down there to see if there was anything that I could do. Um, because knowing that I had access to all these other sort of resources and things that I could maybe help out with. And it always felt, it always felt good to be able to go there and to have those difficult conversations with families and to be able to, to provide some sort of respite, you know? Yep. And to be, to be a, a model for the officers on like what sort of de-escalation looks like, you know what I mean? I mean, I think, you know, it's just, I had a slightly different mission when I was doing the sort of the social work piece versus the police piece. Now the mission is like sort of the same, but the approach is a little bit different, you know, you have a different mandate know. essentially, right? Yeah. The, yeah. There's a different mandate. There's a different way that you're sort of like going about your business. But at the end of the day, I mean, we're, we're, we're all trying to help people, right? I'm not, I know I'm not answering your question with like a specific instance, but I think, I think that those are the moments that I was most proud is that when I was able to 
step into like a really difficult family situation that nobody quite had an answer for. And I was able to come in and do a little bit more digging and find up with, find out some sort of a creative solution uh, using some sort of a resource that I had available to me that the officers didn't have, you know? So that's awesome. That, that, always, that always felt good to me that we could walk away from that. And the police, you know, they would say to me like, Hey, thanks for coming down. Like, you, like you really helped out. Right. I get you. It must be flattering when someone says, Hey, you know, we, we need some help. And we heard that you're the guy or whatever. And, you know, I'm real, I'm really teeing it up for you right now, Linsky, you know, just, but no, but, but seriously, you know, that, that, that's, that happens in all professions. Right. And it's nice when it does, right. Yeah. When, when you have somebody outside of your immediate circle professionally that says, Hey, we could use some help. And, uh, you know, can, uh, are you that guy? So I, I get yeah. you now. I think now the cool part of that is that like now 2021, right. Uh, 10 years later, right. You know, you can be listening to the radio, like the different channels on the radio, almost every shift they're going all out on all channels looking for the best team. Hey, is the best team working today? Can we get a clinician over here? Is the best team working today? Can we get them to come to this address? And every time that happens, it's like, I think back, I'm like, that's awesome. That's great. That guys are always, that they're looking for this organization, these clinicians to come to their scene, to their 911 call, to help them out with some sort of a situation because um, they know it's a good resource, you know? Because I remember it on day one. I remember on day one when I showed up to the station, and people were like, who the hell is this guy? Like, who is this guy? Yeah. Who is this social worker? They're like, what? Yeah. They're like, we're going to have a clinician riding around with us. Like people thought that I was like a snitch for the FBI. There was like <laughs> all kinds of like wild rumors going around that I actually yeah. like, I worked for internal affairs that I was like, <laughs> you know, like it's like crazy stuff. That, uh, yeah. What? I got to pay Costello and wait for him to trade me to the FBI? Because that's what he does. FBI was talking about it. and like look how far we've come you know it's great yeah well i think it's i i think it's interesting because what what you do like your boots on the ground and really and, and i say this clinically to, to me i always thought that what you did was very boots on the ground in terms of addressing mental health issues and i i get frustrated when people i think people like to say today like oh we have to do more of this we have to do more of this like i said like the mental health piece oh Oh, hashtag, you know, mental health matters and things like that. And it's like, well, you were doing it and you were having a lasting impact. I think that's so much more just has such more of an impact than, you know, someone going on Twitter and saying, I care about mental health and we need to talk about this more. It's like, no, nah, man, you were doing it 10 years ago. And now when people say like, oh, we should have more of a conversation around mental health issues or this issue or this issue, it frustrates me because I don't, I think it's, it's very self-aggrandizing. I think it makes the person seem virtuous when they don't necessarily have to do anything. And it kind of gives them this unearned moral superiority. Whereas you didn't think about it. You didn't have to advertise it. You just went and did it because you cared about it. It happened to be your profession, but you're in that profession because you like it. And you care about it. Well, yeah. I mean, if it frustrates you, imagine how much it frustrates me. You know, like it's, uh, it's, I think it's easy for you, for people to, I mean, and I get it, you know, I'm, I'm trying to come from a place of, um, a place of like empathy here that it's like, if you don't, you don't know what you don't know. Right. So like, if you're not doing the work, if you don't have the education and an experience and your only exposure to these things is what you see on TV, 
then you're going to have a very skewed perspective about what it is policing actually is. And you're going to have a very skewed perspective about the resources that are available to police officers to bring to people. And you're going to have a very skewed perspective about how police officers are actually talking to people and how the vast majority of these calls actually go. So like, in ter- you know, to bring it back to like the teaching and coaching part of your podcast, like at a lot of these calls that I'm out, that I'm at, or just generally when I'm out in the community doing my job, even now, even probably more now, we're doing a lot of teaching and coaching to the public in general about like what it is that we, who I am and what we do, what the mission of my unit is, what the mission of the police is, you know, um, and really educating people about the misconceptions, right? There's just a lot of misconceptions floating around around out there about what policing looks like and what we do to people or don't do to people. And so there's a lot of teaching and coaching that I think that's happening really sure. at that first point of contact about like, well, you know, what is it that you think that we should do? I mean, I, I love having those conversations with people like when I'm in the yeah. mood to do it. And to kind of pick their brain and say, well, what, what, do you, what do you think would be effective in this situation? You know, something plays out in front of them and they're a witness to it and it's over and maybe I'm still in the area and maybe they're still there and, you know, they're, they're, they're looking to have a conversation with me, maybe like a confrontational one. But I love turning it around on people and asking them, well, what, like, well, what do you think we should do? What, what's your opinion about what you just saw? What other actions would you have taken? Is there somebody else that you think that should be here that wasn't here? And I like to think about, and I like to hear people out. And then I like to sort of educate them and teach them about, well, it's interesting that you brought up point A because we have that, we have that resource. And then I teach them about that resource. And most of a lot of the times people will walk away from these things kind of amazed and a little bit embarrassed being like, you know what? I didn't know. I didn't know that the police had master's level clinicians riding around with them. And they've been doing that since 2011. They didn't know that, that, that a good amount of our police force is trained in crisis intervention training, that, a good, that some amount of our police force is trained to be as recovery coaches for people dealing with substance use disorders, right? We have a lot of highly trained guys that are out there you know, really trying to do their best and provide a good product. And people just don't know about it. How would you explain the purpose of a police department? Because I feel like, to your point, that people have really skewed perceptions for whatever reason, because they watch the show cops or they watch you know, NYPD blue or whatever. And they have all these preconceived notions that are just really disconnected from what you guys actually do. So like, what, what is, what is the purpose? Why do we have police departments? Seriously? I mean, it's a good question. I mean, first of all, it's like cops is a cool show, you know, like I, like those shows are fun. <laughs> 215, I got one running southbound towards 161 behind the uh, taco shop. You know, oh, yeah. I'm not going to, I'm not going to knock those shows. Like, I, I think I was talking about, I forget, maybe I was talking with you about this. I forget someone, but it's like, it's not a, I don't think it's a coincidence that like, there's so many shows about cops, detectives or cops. It's like, people are fascinated with police. Like as much as there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of sort of vitriol right now. And a lot of like, sure. sort of like hate in that community. It's like, well, not on TV, like yeah. <laughs> oh, it, it was it was you, me, and John, and uh, uh, was it da- uh, your partner, David? Yeah, 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 yeah. We were yeah. all talking. Yeah, we were talking about this. It's like 
you know, geez, like for all for all the like the the negative publicity, like man, there's some great there's some great content out there. Yeah, the people Wire. love a cop show, you know. Yeah, like, they still absolutely. talk about the Wire. Is like, oh, it's the greatest show of all time, and it's like <laughs> one of the most accurate shows I've ever seen. You know, it's yeah. Like, At the front end, I got to tell you, uh, I'm a huge fan of the Wire. I think it's one of the uh, greatest, uh, not just television shows, but pieces of art uh, uh, in the last. Uh, couple of decades I, I was a huge fan of it you love the wire but you're like he i don't know whatever you know yeah <laughs> <laughs> to answer your question um you know the well let, let me let me put it let me let me sort of reframe it <clears throat> i think one big obstacle that a lot of police officers run into especially nowadays is like they come into policing they come into the academy with an idea of what policing is right with these expectations and a lot of them come from like what you see on tv or the movies or whatever um and then and they think you know i'm gonna chase the bad guy i'm gonna i'm gonna catch the bank robber i'm gonna hop the fence i'm gonna get the gun i'm gonna boop 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 boop, boop right and then you come into policing and then you start going to these calls and you realize that like oh yeah i get to do that stuff every once in a while but the vast majority of my work is not that, you know, the vast majority of your work is like talking to people, you know, is, um, you know, going to going to these like family trouble calls where like a single mom is having a really hard time dealing with her unruly teenager. And the police are called because she doesn't have any other, doesn't have access to any other resources and she's at her wits end and doesn't know what else to do. So she calls the police. So the police are there sitting there talking in somebody's living room and sort of acting as the intermediary between a very frustrated mother and a very frustrated teenager. And, and, and I could just imagine that officer thinking to himself like, well, this isn't what I signed up for. And that's, that's, that is what policing that is, you know, if like, if I had to describe policing to somebody like that's policing, you know, especially policing in like, in like a major city in a busy district, like that's going to be a lot of your calls. A lot of your calls are going to be people dealing with like um, drug and alcohol issues, you know, like that's huge right now. The opioid epidemic is like, it's just hammering everyone, you know, so every, you know, then a lot of issues around homelessness that's sort of related to that. Um, the mental health piece is huge. A lot of like nuisance type calls of like this person's trespassing on my property or, or you know, this guy's parked his car in front of my driveway and then you have to show up and get in between two neighbors that are screaming at each other. Like that's policing. If you had to describe policing to somebody, it's like, yeah, I could, I could tell you some pretty cool calls that I've been on that I've been involved with and some high speed chases and get to hop a fence and tackle a guy and, you know, take a, take a gun off of a guy that shouldn't have one. Yeah. That stuff's going to happen. And that, and those moments are going to sort of define your career. Like you're going to think about those calls, you know, but the majority of the calls that you're going to are quality of life issues. That's what it means to be a police officer. I think is like dealing with quality of life, quality of life type issues, you know? All those 311 complaints that are put into the mayor's office, like- What exactly is, how would you define a quality of life issue in the context of policing? So here, here's, so, uh, you know, down in, in Newmarket Square, people call that area like methadone mile, sort of that area, right? Those are all quality of life type issues, right? 
you have businesses and private residences that are trying to exist in that area. Sorry if this is loud. The two dogs are like slurping on a uh, water bowl right next to me. Nice. Is nice. That like, it's all, it's, no, it's not, dude, it's not bad. It's not is bad. That okay. No. So, so that area of New Market Square, you have businesses and residences that are trying to exist down there, right? Everything that it means to have your home be there, have a business be there. Um, and you have a large homeless population, a sort of a vagrant population that's sort of coming in and out of the city. There's a lot of drug use there. Um, there's homeless shelters there. Uh, there are detox facilities there. So there's people kind of sort of coming in and out, accessing those resources. So that's going to create all these quality of life issues. Somebody's complaining because another person has set up a tent uh, on their, you know, the corner of their property or a business is calling because um, there's a bunch of uh, dirty needles on the ground or human feces nearby, you know, uh, because people need a place to go to the bathroom, right? Because if you have this many people walking around and they're all homeless, they got to go somewhere. So those are all quality of life issues, you know, and like that, that, you know, that area is just sort of rampant with them. So that's an area that, that my unit in particular spends a lot of our time. If we didn't have a police department it was uh and we were just left to fend for ourselves and solve all of our own problems like to the extreme would is it safe to assume that we would just have anarchy and chaos or might people figure something out like is like what do you think well i mean it's an interesting question you know because that sort of like gets at the heart of this whole of the whole like sort of defund movement right the defund movement being like let's take away some resources from or reallocate these resources away from police services, classic police services, and put them towards like these social work type services, right? That's the idea. I would argue that like that is both, you know, that that these other entities should be more funded and they do need more funding and they need more robust funding. And I think that that's a reason why police officers and all these other emergency service personnel have taken on all these additional roles because We've really failed to fund these other entities, right? We just don't. We just don't value them as much as we should as a society. We don't give. You know, we don't give them. I mean, look at what a social worker makes, right? We just don't value sure. these things, right. right? So there's a reason why these things go underfunded, and um, you know, we are the safety net. Eventually, like the whole emergency service personnel, fire department, EMS. Boston police, like we are the safety net. People are going all through those cracks and they're going to land with us and we're going to have to catch them. We're just trying to do a better job of being a better safety net, right? So I would, so I'm getting away from the point. I would argue that these things need to be more funded. I don't think taking funding away from us though is going to create a better, more professional police force. I mean, it doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, on one hand, if you're saying like, I want my police force to be better trained, um, better vetted. I want police officers who are good at this job, right? I want them to be more educated. I want them to be better professionals, but at the same time saying, we're also going to take resources away from you. It's just, it doesn't, it doesn't gel, right? So I, so I think more to, to answer your question, like would things fall to anarchy without us? I think here's what would happen. Or here's one of the one of the functions that we play as a classic police entity, especially in that area, New Market Square. You have all these issues: homelessness and substance use and mental health that are sort of swirling around. It's like the perfect storm down there. 
And because of that, you have a large population that is, that is extremely vulnerable. And when you have a vulnerable population like that, inevitably it's going to attract other people that are going to come in and take advantage of that vulnerable population. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, that's when the outskirts of all these issues, you have violent crime. Yeah. So surrounding, you know, the, a stabbing down there or a shooting down there, or um, uh, a woman who is prostituting herself in order to get the funds to be able to pay for her addiction, she gets sexually assaulted. So those violent crimes are surrounding all of these quality of life issues. So that's the role for, for classic police functions down there is to pick off those people around the edges that are coming in and preying upon that vulnerable population. Is it safe to is it safe then to assume based on what you just mentioned that um, a lot of police work is kind of preventative maintenance, right? Because if you're addressing quality of life issues all the time, you're doing so because you know it's like, hey, I know how the story ends, right? And it's not good, right? Yeah. That that you that if you start you have if you're dealing with somebody that has mental health issues um, and substance abuse issues and is homeless, you're vulnerable. And when you're, it's like, you remember those old direct TV ads? When you get angry, you know, you call the cable company. And when the cable company doesn't answer, then you decide to go take up jujitsu because you're angry. And then you try your jujitsu. And it's just like, it's this never ending ripple effect. When your cable company keeps you on hold, you get angry. When you get angry, you go blow off steam. When you go blow off steam, accidents happen. When accidents happen, you get an eye patch. When you get an eye patch, people think you're tough. When people think you're tough, people want to see how tough. And when people want to see how tough, you wake up in a roadside ditch. Don't wake up in a roadside ditch. Get rid of cable and upgrade to direct TV. So you kind of know that series of events that's, uh, that is going to unfold when you see uh, quality of life issues kind of being uh, violated, if you will. And your job, part of your job as a police officer is to, uh, is preventative maintenance of those things. Do I have that right? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think so. Preventative maintenance or, or even being proactive um, to, 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 to sort of reduce the vulnerabilities of these populations, you know, um, there's a lot of things that police are doing behind the scenes to try to create a, just a safer community down there, you know, like specifically in that area of New Market Square. You know, it's a place just full of tragic stories. You know, it's like people really existing um, at the bottom of what of most people's barrels, you know. And so because of that, like I said, it's going to attract a certain population that's going to come down there and take advantage of them, you know. They're extremely vulnerable people. They've burned a lot of bridges. A lot of them don't have family members who are willing to, to sort of, they've already burned those bridges with their family members. You know, they're, they're, they've lost the connections with their treaters. Um, maybe they had a, a sober house that they were living in, but they relapsed. And so now they can't go back to the sober house until they go to detox, but they don't want to go to detox because they're stuck in that cycle of addiction. It's a pretty despondent scene down there, you know? And you can get pretty, you know, it's, it's hard for a police officer, you know, to kind of go down there day in and day out. And you want to be part of the solution. But at the same time, like you're also hearing it from multiple angles that like that we don't have a place down there that we're that, you know, that we're being told that like, hey, this isn't this isn't a fight for you guys. This isn't something that you can be helpful with, you know, and that's tough because as a 
as a police officer, like this is why you got into the job is because you want to help people. And especially somebody who's in my position that knows about all the different resources that we have available to us. It, it's frustrating, you know? Speaking of which, I mean, how, how did you transition from your role as jail clinician to getting uh, ordered uh, to going into the academy and getting sworn in and becoming uh, officially a Boston uh, police officer? I mean, it was, it was an interesting transition. You know, I would say it's like I had spent that five years riding around with these guys, you know, so it's, it wasn't like I didn't know what I was getting into. I knew what I, I, I for the most part, knew what I was getting into. Um, but it's totally different once you get out there and you put the uniform on, you got the badge on, you have a whole new set of responsibilities and it feels, you know, you can feel the weight of that responsibility. And then once you start living that lifestyle of working a ton, no more holidays, a lot of the, the hobbies that you used to do, you don't have time for anymore. Your friends and family might treat you differently now that you're a police officer. Somebody sees something on the news that happened halfway across the country. Now, like I have to, I have to, you know, people treat me differently because of somebody else's actions, you know, yep. so you're taking on the weight of like something that happened somewhere else. You know, it's, it is a tough, it was a tough transition. Um, and it still is, you know, it's still, it's still not easy, you know? Um, so yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but uh, it's well, very different jobs. You know, there were different yeah. jobs. Where one was 40 hours a week where like that was all I was going to be working and it was very structured and I still had time for activities and, you know, hobbies and friends and family. And then you go to, you step over to policing. Now it's like, whoa, I'm working 80 hours a week. You know, uh, you feel like you're in a you're in, you're in the washer dryer cycle, you know, you're just sure. around, you know, I, I'm curious. I, I am curious in, in what you just said, uh, kind of the, 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 the mental transition, but equally curious at it, it just like the logistics of your transition. Like you went, like you went from clinician to, okay, now I have to go to the Academy now I have to do this. Like, how did that process all unfold for you? You know what I'm saying? I mean, it happened very quickly. It was, it was literally like, I, I think I took a few days off and then I like started the Academy and it was, it was, it was interesting for me because like, you know, like I said, I had, I had spent five years before within the department and mesh in the department. So I knew all the Academy instructors. I used to go down to the Academy to work out when I was just like a clinician, you know, and then I show up as a recruit on day one and it's like, none of that stuff mattered anymore. None of it. It's like, I was just one of a hundred other guys in the tan khakis getting yelled at, getting screamed at, can't do anything right. Um, doing a million push-ups, uh, just like everybody else, you know, and I had never been through that sort of experience before. I mean, I played like, you know, I played athletics when I was younger and I sort of like, you know, I've been around like a sort of a team hazing sort of situation, but I didn't have military <laughs> experience. You know, I think like the military guys like kind of fared a little bit better because they went through, They've been through boot camps. They've been through basic training. Like they've had people screaming in their face before. Like I've never had that before. You know, yeah. I was, it was like a total yeah. shock. I was like, damn, like this guy's pissed at me. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, sir. <laughs> <laughs> like I just, I like, he well, keeps throwing my shoes down the hallway. I just shine them. <laughs> I just polished those. Oh my god. The shoes, the whole shoe thing is like so ridiculous, you know, because it's like 
it's just a, it's something that they do to kind of like mess with your head and kind of put you in your place of like, it doesn't matter what you do. It's never, it's not, you know, it's, it's never good enough, never good enough kind of thing. And it's like, I always, I was under these, I was like, maybe if I do a really, really good job shining these, like, um, they're not going to yell at me tomorrow. And I was like, every day, <laughs> like, <laughs> and you were mistaken. <laughs> It just didn't matter. I was like, oh, maybe I was like, you know what? I'll bring him to like a professional shoe shiner. That'll show him. It's like, no. Did you actually do that? Yeah. What? Well, yeah. This is, I was, uh, yeah, I was a crazy person. So I, uh, yeah, I was. I didn't know I was, this. <laughs> well, yeah, I brought, <laughs> I brought him, I brought him to like some shoe place. And I was like, uh, I was like, I was like, I was like so naive. I was so naive. I told the kid, I was like, I was like, come on, dude, you really got to hook me up. I was like, every day they're, they're, they're screwing me for these shoes. Like, like, I don't know what I'm doing. And the guy's like, don't worry about it. He's like, I'm a professional. And he's like, put them in the machine. The whole thing. He shows them to me. I'm like, damn, they look pretty good to me. And I was like, well, apparently not good enough. You know? Yeah. Right. End up like watching them from the roof, you know, like. Yeah. <laughs> Did he, he threw them off a roof? Did he no, seriously? No, I'm just, well, okay. they, you know, they, they, they may, you know, they, they do some things. I don't want to give away trade secrets, but the, you know, your your shoes are never going to be good enough for a certain period of time. Eventually, right, right, they get right. good enough, and magically, everybody's shoes are fine. You know, like <laughs> how, how did that happen? Yeah, you know? Right. Like, like there is no there is no situation where someone comes by and says like, "Well, private, that's fantastic. Nice job. You're off no. for today." Yeah, yeah. like that's <laughs> everyone's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah right 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 hey you're just you're just you're just the the maggot for today that's it yeah. that's it um so <laughs> wasn't uh was it what was john doing when you were in the academy because he's a vet obviously wasn't i i can't remember wasn't he messing with you in some way shape or form like putting like bumper stickers on your car or something like that oh yeah i think he, yeah he did he, <laughs> what did he I put in your he, car i forget what he put on there but it was it was it was bad enough that I had to like scrape it off with my fingernails or something. I don't remember <laughs> it, what it was. <laughs> was it like all all like the I've got your six like the oh you know, yeah I the, think it was like some yeah it was some like police stuff it was some like very like you like know really cliche like, yeah yeah like, yeah some like thin blue line or something like that I was like oh my god I'm gonna get I'm gonna get beat up for this yeah and then and then the uh the the drill instructors what 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 would they do if they saw it? they would be like oh you think that you're trying to ingratiate yourself here like 50 push-ups or something like that is that something yeah 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 they'd, they'd come after you for it i got gotcha. you the so, goal was it... to be the gray man the goal was to like was to disappear you know but i always found that to be pretty hard because they all they all knew me you know how old were you when you went into the academy 35 35 and then and most most guys were like 22 23 24 something like that right yeah they were younger yeah so I, w I was not the oldest but i was up there gotcha but you did all right though i mean didn't you get some sort of physical fitness award or something like that uh yeah no big deal <laughs> <laughs> and now you're 192 pounds you know <laughs> i'm bulking yeah <laughs> i'm putting on my my covid bulk <laughs> yeah <laughs> you get ready for the nuclear winter to come yeah <laughs> so, exactly <laughs> um all right so you go through the academy you get out of the academy and then w what's the first year like as a brand new police officer is it just like whoa, like what is going on here i know you mentioned you know 
friends and family talking to you differently, losing holidays. You don't have time for hobbies anymore. Yeah. Is there anything else that like we, we like we've not covered that was just like a, a complete shock? Like like there must have been times you're like, what did I sign up for? Oh my god, it was the first. It was the first week. It was it was honestly it was the first week that I that I was like, you know, it, I was never I was never going to quit. But I, but the, but the first week I had like a real like eye-opening experience of like, oh my God, I can't believe this is what it's going to be like, you know? And it was because I, it was because, um, you know, we were, we're still, we're still short on personnel now, but we were definitely short on personnel back then. And the first week I got ordered to do, um, I, I was, I showed up for my first half shift, which was four to midnight. And I hadn't done anything in the morning prior to my shift because I didn't know that, that at that time that it's like, well, you should, you need to do that to protect yourself. So you don't get ordered after your shift, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I was like, eh, that's not going to happen to me. It's like, we're too new or whatever. I don't know what sort of stupid thing I had in my mind, but that was pretty naive. So the first, literally, I think it was like the first week I was on the job, I got ordered every single night. So I was working from 4 PM to 8 a.m. every night and so I, then I would come home in the morning and and try to sleep a little bit and then you know get some crappy sleep during the day and then go back at 4 p.m. and then get ordered again to work another midnight shift after this was after working four to midnight then getting ordered to work from midnight to 7 30 in the morning you know and yep. you do that four days in a row and then you really start to like doubt like was this a good life choice you know did I make a horrible life decision here you know yeah but then you yeah. start to learn the ropes a little bit and, and, you know, you, you know, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't really slow down, you know, because uh, just the way that things are, a lot of guys are having to work details or overtime before their shift in order to get ordered after. So either way, you're going to be working doubles. But- well, okay. So we were talking about how you have to be a teacher in a lot of situations, right? And, and this, this reminds me of something that you taught me once. I think it'd be good to cover what is minimum manning in a police department? Because this is one of the reasons why you have to work doubles and have to work these insane hours, right? Yeah. So, um, so minimum manning is refers to like the minimum amount of police officers that need to be out on the street at any given time, right? And that's basically an equation that they come up with that has to do with population density and the number of 911 calls that that district is getting, right? So minimum manning for one part of Boston is going to be different than minimum manning for another part of Boston, but it's a, but it's the same concept. There's a minimum amount of officers that they have to put on the street. So if you don't have enough officers to cover that shift, then you're going to have to order some, which is basically telling a police officer that they have to work more than their normal amount of time and telling them that they have to work more to cover that minimum manning. Got it. Is that a concept that you find yourself explaining to people when they when they get confrontational or when they challenge you a little bit about uh, whatever situation that you're in? I know you mentioned that some people that you, that you like to kind of have those conversations where you get a chance to educate people and be like, well, this is actually what we do and this is why we do it. I don't know, maybe I'm assuming too much. I just would imagine that that is a situation that may come up uh, because people like to poke and prod at the state police about like, oh, overtime this and overtime that and BPD as well, overtime this. And yet I feel like they don't know what you have to do on a day-to-day basis. 
Yeah, this is, I mean, it's not common knowledge, you know, I mean, it's not something that we're hiding from anyone, but it's also not something that like, you know, that most people know about that we have a, a minimum manning requirement that has to be put out. They don't know that like we're just short staffed. You know, I think I think people just kind of look at some of these salaries and they think like, oh, you know, look at what these guys are making. But they don't realize that like we're basically working the equivalent of two full time jobs. Right. Sure. So it's like take that number and just kind of divide it by two. And it's like we're kind of making like, you know, we're making like a moderate middle class salary times two, you know, yeah. or like, a, you know, whatever, like a middle class times two. Yeah. Um, because And for a lot of guys that, you know, they don't have a choice. I mean, we I am we are lucky in that some of that is is by choice. You know, I think if you ask most officers, they would say, yeah, I like to work a little bit extra, make some money here or there to pay for this or that pay for the Christmas presents or, you know, the kids want to go on vacation. So I'm going to work a little bit extra this week. You know, it's nice that we have an opportunity to do that. You know, don't get me wrong, but there's always a certain chunk of that overtime that guys would rather not be doing, but they're doing it because they have to do it, you know? Right. Right. I get you. What are some of, um, what, uh, what are some conversations that you've had, whether it's with this issue or not, um, with people where you've, had really positive outcomes with with educating them or teaching them about what it is a police department does or doesn't do and they've come away with a different perspective um you know what i actually have a really good example of this only because it, it was fairly recent and this was something that happened within the past um few days last week um we got a call about a missing person um this person was missing out of a out of a town uh uh, outside of Boston. Um, uh, but I got a phone call. Um, this person, uh, basically the person's family, the, the, the person's, the missing person's sister was very concerned with her. She had reason to believe that her, that her sister, the missing person was, uh, was in the area of New Market Square, Methadone Mile, that she was in the company of an unpleasant gentleman, um, that she was, uh, uh, addicted to opioids, had been using drugs for, you know, an unknown period of time that she got out. She, she left out of a detox uh, AMA against medical advice too early. Um, she's been living on the streets. So the sister was very worried about her other sister, their sisters, right? Um, and somehow the, eventually that sister got my phone number, you know, probably went through a chain of people, right? It sure. started off with like, she called this other police department and they call, you know, she, then they give her the number to Boston. She calls Boston. She talks to a district captain and then it eventually gets down to like me, the specialized unit person who's like in that area. So she, somehow she got my number. So I was talking to her and there was a lot of sort of teaching and coaching that was happening between me and her, where I was educating her about the reality of the opioid epidemic and what it looks like in practice on like boots on the ground, you know, like she really had no idea of what was happening down in Methadone Mile. And she had no idea about, you know, the laws and regulations about what she could do to actually help her sister. You know, we have, you know, we have very specific laws when it comes to these things. You know, we have voluntary, think of there's like a voluntary umbrella and there's an involuntary umbrella. And you have to meet criteria for this involuntary piece over here for me to force things upon you. And if you don't meet that criteria, then I can offer you all the things in the world on this voluntary side, 
But at the end of the day, the person has to want this stuff. They have to agree to that. And that's a tough conversation to have with somebody, especially with a loved one who's very concerned about their, their sister, their significant other. So she calls me, she sends me a bunch of photos of her sister, says, I'm really worried about her. You know, what can we do? And I said, well, you know, I know this area pretty well. I know a lot of people down here. If she's down here, just give me a few hours. I'll find her, you know, and it, it only took me a few hours. It took me a few hours, but I found the girl um, and she was, you know, she was neck deep in opioid addiction. She had been on the streets for three weeks uh, using uh, drugs. Uh, multiple times a day um, because the way that fentanyl works fentanyl is is sort of mostly the active ingredient in the opioids on the street now which is a very fast acting opioid so people have to use it a lot during the day right so she's using fentanyl multiple times a day um you know not looking very good and i'm you know and i'm trying to sort of negotiate things with her to sort of bring her and her family back together but also to try to like offer services to her at the same time to try to convince her that she needs these things but it's a tightrope right you know so the dog, dog's going i love around. it frankie, who's winning the who's winning the battle maybe i can give frankie a little treat come here frank come here you want a little treat yeah bring, bring frankie on the show i'm gonna throw treats at him come here if you bring him on here is he gonna like try to chew on the camera i just gave one to willie one to frank you guys gotta relax Maybe that'll quiet him down for like a second. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's so eventually, long story short, I was able, I, I got the sister to come down and meet us. And they had a, a little, you know, a reunion, literally like right in the middle of Methadone Mile, like right there by the McDonald's, you know, in that, in that parking lot, kind of surrounded by, you know, all kinds of people living a life of, of destitution down there. And we had a we had a, a, a nice moment, a nice reunion between these sisters who obviously care about each other. There's a love and a bond there, um, but they're existing in the middle of this opioid ep epidemic and this woman's addiction, cycle of addiction that has, it's just ruining her, you know? But we were able to bring them back together. And, and I just, you know, I gave them a list of detox facilities and said, you know, here's a place, a bunch of places that you can call and I'll do what I can to try to help you out. But other than that, it's like, it's, it's on her, you know? What do you think that, uh, I mean, we've, we've covered a lot, covered a lot here in terms of um, how you explain your job and, and you're in a, a funny situation because <laughs> we talked about this earlier that there's not many jobs where you are constantly, constantly, constantly explaining your existence, right? So there's a, there's a kind of a baked in educational element to that, whether you want to call that teaching or coaching, probably more teaching. Um, but, you know, to somebody that is completely new to you um, in, in this show, you know, what do you think that they can take away from you as a teacher, you as a coach? What do I think they can take away from me as a teacher and a coach? Um, I think, I don't know. I, I think it would, be, I think it would be nice if, um, if everyone was able to sort of take a collective breath and take a step back and, um, and just view police officers as like people who are just trying to, they're just trying to help you, right? They're put into a position where there are suspects and victims and witnesses, and we're just trying to sort things out in like highly chaotic experiences and highly chaotic times. And I guess I would just ask people to like, take a pause, like, you know, try to be a little bit sympathetic to, to the situation and um, 
And I think that that's the best way that we can get through a lot of these things. You know, people yeah. come into a lot, people come into these situations with these preconceived notions. And those, those are simply just barriers and obstacles that me as a police officer, I have to work through before I can get to a place where we're both on the same page and we're actually working towards a, a, a meaningful dialogue. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, there's yeah. always those, there's always those obstacles. So, so I don't know. I mean, I guess if there's anything I could, I could tell somebody is to, you know, try to help, try to help me out with that, you know? Sure. You know, let's try sure. to work together on that. Not the one-sided. What about some of the skills that you use in your, in your job that maybe somebody could apply in their life? Like for, for example, I know you were talking about being able to, you talked a lot about like just asking questions and like, Hey, well, like, what would you do in this situation yourself? Like, that's fair. I hear you. Um, what are some of the tact, like, is that a tactic that somebody could then use at their professional job and as a parent, as a, a brother, a sister, you know what I'm saying? Are there some teaching and coaching tactics that you employ as a police officer that somebody could, that somebody could use in a different context? In their own mm -hmm. life i would say modeling is probably the biggest thing that we that i do right so most of, a lot of the communication i mean you, you know you're not you know you probably know just just as much stuff about this as i do but most of our communication is not the things that we say it's how we say them right so one of the things that i try to always be cognizant of is that when i'm at these calls is like how i am communicating these things to people and how I'm approaching people and my demeanor and my posture, you know, um, my speech, my tone, you know, um, because those are the things that are, that often help me kind of bridge that gap. When I talked about those obstacles that you have to overcome before you get to a place where you're having a meaningful dialogue, one of the easiest ways that I have found to overcome those obstacles quickly is to be really good at de-escalating and de to be really good at de-escalating is to is to model de-escalation to the other person so that they come down to where you're at. So if they're up here, I come in down here and then they will naturally come to where I am and I might go a little bit lower and then they come down to me as opposed to they're here and I'm up here and I'm trying to push them down. Oftentimes, if you come in up here, they're just going to meet you up there. Got it. Got it. So, you know, a parent that's dealing with an unruly teenager. Cause I know that was a, a true story. You mentioned earlier that that parent, instead of being like, you know, I'm the boss in this house and you gotta listen to me. You're so ungrateful and pa 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 pa. Instead, they should say, Hey, look, you're upset right now. You should go and take a walk. And then when you come back, I'll listen to you and I'll listen to everything you have to say or so I I'm making this up by the way, but something yeah. along those lines, you know what I'm saying? I mean, anything that you can do that, that validates somebody's experience is always going to be appreciated. At yeah. the end of the day, like people just want to, they want to be heard, right? They want to be seen. They want to be heard. So if you can find ways to let somebody know, I see you, I hear you, you know, like yeah. that's like, that's half the battle, you know? That's uh, that's funny. You mentioned that. I had a therapist tell me that like on the first, at like the first session, that we ever had that that was like of the utmost importance 
of every person in the world. So that, yeah, wow, that's that's bringing back a few conversations. Yeah, it was, and that like when people feel disrespected or when they get angry, it's it's usually because they don't feel seen and don't feel heard. That's essentially what it is. Like like nine times out of ten. Yeah, that the like the um this is kind of cool. So like the the training that they put you through to be a crisis negotiator, it's a pretty cool training. The FBI does it. And it's like a standardized training across the country. We all we all go through the same one, so that a, so that if you're trained to be a negotiator in this department, you could go to a different department if there was some sort of a huge incident and they needed multiple negotiators. You're all trained the same way. But so for the most part, what they're teaching you is these is counseling techniques. They're teaching you how to how to like talk to people and how to listen to people, active listening, validation summarizing you know you sound really frustrated to me you sound really angry to me it seems like you've had a really hard day today you know just like naming the emotions that you're hearing you know and that's it you know like that's what that's all that negotiating is like they think there's some magic pill to it or magic fairy dust there's there's no magic words all it is is like you're in a very high stress situation for x number of reasons and I'm going to come in as the negotiator. And my job is to let you know that I hear you and I'm listening to you and I see how frustrating it is, it is to you. And um, I'm just going to listen and I'm going to try to like buy time and try to expand this and get you to a place where eventually you're a little bit more reasonable. And then we can come to like a, a you know, a, a, a mutual decision or a mutual plan about how we're going to be able to extricate you safely from there. But we can't get to that point until you are calm and submissive and cooperative, you know, but the way you get people to that is through these de-escalation techniques, these counseling right. techniques, you know, right. that's how you right. do it. I gotcha. And I'd imagine you still have to balance that out with, with, uh, with, with some, uh, I don't even know how to say this. <sighs> That I would, I would imagine you still have to balance that out with, at times, drawing a hard line when somebody has threatened somebody else's physical safety and be like, no, no, like, that's not okay. And I have to do something about this. Am I right? Well, what, what do you mean? Like, in terms of a negotiating sort of situation? Uh, not specific well, to negotiation, just I think it, overall in police work that there's, okay, like you had said that there's a most of the time you are in situations where you're trying to de-escalate. But that sometimes when people just don't want to listen, uh, don't want to take any of your uh, of any of your counsel, and they want to get violent or they want to uh, they want to escalate in some way, shape, or form, that you're forced to um, to take a stance and be like, okay, you need to be restrained or you need to be uh, moved over here and away from this because you're going to be doing harm to yourself if I don't, or you're going to be doing harm to somebody else. Do I have that right? Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, we're police officers and our job is to keep people safe. Um, but most departments sort of use force policies are pretty similar in that like you start with like the lowest level force that you can and then you work your way up from there like based on the actions that the other person is showing you you know um yep. but everything these days is about de-escalation you know you you really have to be able to justify the things that you are doing or not doing you know um so it's all about you know it's all about de-escalation and buying time and giving people the opportunity to calm down 
at the end of the day, you know, if we have to act and we have to do something to keep somebody safe, we're going to do that. Um, but we need to we need to justify that, and just to, to find that justifying that often means showing that you tried X Y Z before you sure. went. You know, in a way, it's not much different than than an actual teacher, right? I mean, we have in every in any school I've worked at, there's been uh, there's been there's been discipline referrals. And there's usually like step one, step two, step three, right? And it's like, okay, did you do step one where you talk to the kid one-on-one and you tried to come up with, you know, you kept them after school for detention, you called home. Did you do that? Okay. Step two, still didn't do it. Okay. You referred it to the assistant principal, the dean. Still didn't do it. Okay. Gets up to the, to the, to the principal and still isn't working. Okay. Now we're talking like suspension. Okay. Got suspended still is the negative behavior. Okay. Now we're talking about maybe like expulsion or something like that. And it just keeps on going and going and going from yeah. there. I think, what do they call that? Progressive discipline? Uh, like that. It might be the fancy word for it. Yeah, sure. Let's call it that. Makes it sound smart. So, you know, same thing. Yeah. 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 We got yeah, it. We got the same thing. Got it. Got it. And it's like, I think a parent does that too, don't they? I mean, it's like, Okay, <laughs> like you know what, what's like the old cliche with you know the dad and the mom in the front seat. Be like, I swear I'll pull over if you don't quiet down over there. And then they don't listen. And there's like, I said I'm gonna pull over, and, and eventually they pull over. You know, <laughs> it's like it just and, and and kind of the carrot that they're dangling in terms of the consequence changes depending upon the context. You know, it's pulling over the car, it's taking away the phone, it's you know. Maybe if it's a different parent and maybe it's a spanking, maybe it's a, some, you know what I mean? Like it's always changing. Yeah. I just try to be, I try to be, I try to be fair with people. Yeah. I think that that's like the best way, the best way to put it. I mean, I try, I try to, I try to do that in all facets of policing. Like if it's just, I'm doing stuff with the street outreach unit or I'm talking with somebody on the street, or even if it's like a, a crisis negotiating thing, like, my like my goal is just to be fair with people you know there's something that i took from um there was a there was a negotiator um that uh oh god i forget his name but he like he you know he he came up with some material and he was he, you know he's got a book and stuff uh chris voss the the old exit yeah the ex-fbi negotiator yeah so he so yeah so i so i, I i'm not going to take credit for this obviously this is this is his thing but <sighs> But I heard this in one something that he put out that I really liked that really resonated with me, and I've used it before. And his whole thing was like about fairness, right? That generally people want to be treated fairly, right? There you go, Frankie. I'm giving Frankie a little. Oh, that looks delicious. If I was a dog, I'd eat that right away. I think you might eat this as a human. Yeah, <laughs> if I was really desperate, yes, desperate people do desperate things. So Chris Watts's thing about fairness was that he, he was like, tell people that, um, that your goal is to be fair with them. And if that at any point, they feel like they're not being treated fairly, that you want them to let you know, because your goal is to, is to do the right thing and to treat them fairly. And you want to fix that if, if they feel like they're being treated unfairly. Now, I've used that line before. A, a few times, and I've definitely used it um, as a crisis negotiator before. I like that line. 
I like starting that off with people, you know, say that one, say that one more time that like that, to, you know, you say to somebody like, like Eric, you know, my name is Ben. I'm, you know, I'm with the Boston police. I'm a negotiator. I just want you to know up front that my goal is to be fair with you. And if at any point you feel like I'm being unfair, I want you to let me know. And I want to fix that. That's it. You know, it's like three lines or something like that. And it's, and it's like, you're telling the person up front, like, Hey, like, I want you to hold me accountable. Like, I want to be fair with you. And if you feel like you're being treated unfairly, I want you to hold me accountable and let me know. I'm writing that down. It's good. And you can use, you know, it's like, you know, there's, there's lots of different uh, facets in your life that you can use something like that. Well, I mean, I'm just thinking if I'm, when, you know, at the beginning of the year, when I'm introducing grading policies, that's like the time to do it because that's the number one thing. What does every kid in the world argue about grades, right? Like, fair. oh, not yeah, fair. it's not, not fair. It's not fair. It's I fair. deserve this. Right. And so, yeah, no, hundred percent. If you feel I'm not being fair, I want you to hold me accountable. Love it. Love it. See, I, I'm a learning junkie, man. Seriously. I, I, I love this stuff. Yeah, love this good. stuff. Yeah. That's good stuff. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, he was pretty interesting. He's he's been uh he's been a popular guy in the podcast circuit. I've heard him on a bunch of different oh, he's been on a bunch of different platforms. Um, I want to say he's been on like the Jordan Peterson show. I think Matthew McConaughey's interviewed him. Um, God, he's been everywhere and he's interviewed a lot of people too. He's so, got a really good, he's got a really good like uh negotiator voice too, you know. Yeah, yeah, kind of gravelly. Got- and of course, he's from New York City, which helps, you know. He's got like a draw about it, you know, like he's, you know, he like extends his words out. So what's next for you? What's next for you? You've been doing, you've been at this game a while now, eh? I've been at this game a while. I don't, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't really know what's, what's next. I mean, I, you know, in terms of like a policing career, what normal people are do is they try to like, you know, climb the ranks if they can, you know, and if not, if they find themselves in a comfortable position, they kind of ride that wave for as long as they can, you know? So like, I have found myself in a unit that makes sense for me that I enjoy. It's given me a better quality of life. Um, so I'll probably try to sort of ride this wave, you know, for as long as it's available to me. And if I have the opportunity to, you know, to, to go up in the ranks and, and, and take on a more of a leadership role, like I wouldn't shy away from that. Just make sure when you do climb up the ranks into a leadership role, be sure to go find the guy that polished your shoes and get it professionally done and be like, Hey yeah, man, have him do it again. Be yeah. like, Dude, you owe me. <laughs> Cause you did a terrible job the first time. <laughs> like, now I actually need your help. It wouldn't have done yeah. anything last time, but now I'm going to be going on camera. <laughs> that is that that's amazing. I, I will remember that for a long time. So, all right, dude. Well, look, that's, uh, that's all I got. I feel like we covered a lot of ground here and I'm, I'm grateful, thankful that you came on, um, shine some light on kind of what you do. I, I still feel, even though, even though I know you, I, I still feel like I don't understand so much of police work and how could I, um, so I, I think it's good to kind of explore these things just because like we said, you don't know what you don't know, but also because I think that there are so many components of teaching and coaching here. And, and that was why I wanted you on here to begin with. And, and this conversation certainly proved that that was that, yeah. that there really are. So, I mean, I, I, I wrote down a few things here for sure that I uh, hope you come back on again in the future. 
Oh, I'd love to. I'd love to. And, yeah, uh, thanks for having me. This was cool. I hope that the, uh, the the dogs doing their thing in the background wasn't too distracting. You know. Oh, it it, it ruined I'm, the whole I'm, time. I'm over here. I'm over here hand feeding this one to keep them. Oh, the floor. oh, that that's like a cry. So that's like the cry for like, hey, give me some more. That's yeah, that. I, I've just been feeding them for the last five minutes out of my hand. <laughs> <laughs> now he's not going to go away. He's just going to keep hassling you the rest of the night. <laughs> yeah. What kind of dog is that again? Uh, Frankie's a Kanuku. What the heck is a Kanuku? It's an Aruban street dog. An Aruban. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Kanuku equals Aruban street dog. Okay. It's an Aruban street dog. Yeah. All right. Gotcha. Good to know. Guys, for uh, anyone listening to the show, this will be out in a little while. Okay. I want to thank Benny for coming on. Until next time, y'all. See ya.